And if you would uh, kindly remain standing to honor God's word from Jeremiah, 29th chapter, beginning at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's seventy years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. And then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you were with us last week in our series of sermons on Jeremiah, you heard we talked about the verdict of God. We have heard in this series a lot of sermons and messages from Jeremiah warning the people to turn back, warning them to turn from their their evil and wicked ways. And then last week we heard God say, now is the time for judgment and verdict. Namely, that Israel would be conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile. The year was 586 B.C. and the Babylonian military, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, um, succeeded in breaking a two-year-long siege and destroyed much of the city of Jerusalem. Her walls, her palaces, and most devastatingly, the Temple of Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar was continuing his mission to secure and grow the resurrected Babylonian Empire. Now, not to be undone, uh, on, uh, which I am weekly by Pastor Bruce, who knows all things archaeology. He's, he's really an expert in all matters archaeology. I have to put a little parenthesis here in the sermon. This past week, during the middle of the week, Julie and I were really fortunate to go on a very, very quick trip to Washington, D.C. with a group of pastors from Phoenix, and there we were given kind of a backstay, back pass view of the Museum of the Bible. And it was really wonderful. I highly recommend it. While there, I actually got to see this. We got to see this. This is an actual uh, decree from King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Isn't this wonderful? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, provider of Asagalia and the Azida, son of Nebopolassar, king of Babylon, am I built I built the palace for my royal dwelling in the district of Kadingria, which is within Babylon. That's an actual decree that was carved into stone by Nebuchadnezzar. And I, I thought about this as I passed it, that maybe the exiles actually saw this stone. Who knows? All right. That's your little advertisement for my knowledge of archaeology right there. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar um, did more than just conquer um, 
the, he also went into great length to try and ensure that there would be further insurrection or there would be no other rebellions uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Israel, Israelite people. So he took the leaders of Israel, the priests, the artisans, he took the political leaders, the skilled laborers, he took the ruling class, and he carried them all away. We call this exile. He took the, the top leaders and skilled folks of the people of Judah. We might call this psychological warfare. If you take the people away and assimilate them for a couple of generations, they will eventually lose their culture, um, and that then would lessen the possibility of an uprising or a rebellion in the future. Let's assimilate them and let's get them used to our way of life, our way of living, and pretty soon after a while, we won't have to worry about them rising up and getting angry and conquering us in the future. Um, Babylon was very skilled at playing the long game. However, the exiled people knew this. They were aware of what they were trying to do. They were very aware that Babylon was doing, so they, they resisted in, in their own way. So when they got there, when they were taken, picked up, carried off into this foreign country, when the Israelites got there, they refused to move into the city. They settled outside of the city on the Kaibar Canal and decided it was better to have a long commute into work. Better to have a long commute than live in that defiled city, live near those godless Babylonians. Um, their thought was, why would we want to live near these wicked people, these godless people? And can you blame them? They had just been conquered. They had just been overrun. They had just been picked up from their homes, enslaved and taken away, I wouldn't want to live near people who did that to me. In addition, while they were there, the so-called prophets among them that had also been carried off with them, the ones that had been telling them all along that Jeremiah was full of nonsense, they were now telling them, oh, this exile is not a big deal. It'll probably only be a couple of years. The Lord, is just, this is a little punishment. Not a big deal. He'll come back and bring us back. Just wait. Everything's going to be fine. And now this brings us to our text this morning. People living outside the city, hating the people of Babylon, being told that this is not a big deal, don't worry, don't really settle. And we come to our text, and it's a letter from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not taken into exile. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and he writes a letter to those in Babylon. And the letter is a stunning surprise. It's, it's, it's shocking, and it's wonderful, and it teaches us about the gospel. The first thing it says is that the, he tells the people, you should live in the city. You should live in the city. And by the way, it's not going to be a couple years, but it's going to be 70 years. This is verse 5. He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat what they produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there. And do not decrease. Do you see what he's saying? Hey, this is going to be a long 70 years. Go ahead and move into the city. Go ahead and have, make neighbors with these people. They must have read this letter and thought, are you kidding me? I don't want them for a neighbor. I would never want to have one of those type of people for a neighbor. What, what is God wanting us to do? This is, it would have been a, maybe a further insult. You mean those godless, blankety-blank Babylonians? We want you to live in their city? This is what God wants? 
When I was growing up in my church, in Sunday school, our church taught us to divide the world between sacred and secular. And so we did. And so we had Christian bookstores, Christian concerts, Christian music, Christian schools, Christian backpacks and lunch pails. There were Christian stuffed animals. There were Christian restaurants, Christian theme parks. I could go on and on and on and on. As long as it was Christian, it was okay, but we didn't want to be associated with things that were secular. And so the thought was you should try your best to avoid all those things secular. And then the thought was, well, because we have God and they do not. Now, what kind of an attitude does that create those who practice such things towards those who do not? It creates an attitude of contempt, of looking down upon. It creates an attitude of looking at that outside world as evil, yet we inside are good. And we create these deep, awful, dividing lines. God tells the exiled people, it is okay to live in the secular city. You can be near, talk with, care for, go to school with people who do not share your own values. You can do this. He's not telling them to lose their faith or abandon their, their values, but the dividing wall of hostility is being taken down. Respectfully live in that city, but you can keep your own values. You can keep your beliefs in the midst of that. Don't be selfish or contemptuous towards those who live there. Now, there's a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. We read it in Leviticus 19, and it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not something Jesus invented. This is in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor. When I was taught growing up in Sunday school, they were telling us to avoid the neighbor. <laughs> really despise the neighbor. Look at the neighbor and go, Ugh, look how godless they are. Remember when we were growing up? Or I was growing up. We, we heard about those godless communists all the time. We should be afraid of the godless communists. I mean, you, there's all kinds of ways to say this. But in the Old Testament, Leviticus, it says, love your neighbor. How can you love your neighbor when you try and avoid them all the time and despise them? Jesus repeated it. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting the Old Testament. He, he took it a step further and said, also, by the way, love your enemies. That would include Babylonians. And oh, by the way, we're seeing this in Jeremiah. God has a wonderful way of working through secular people for his purposes. It's not that he's all in here and he's devoid out there. No, he's working out there. He was using Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes. He rules over all things, all people. We should look for him out there as well as in here. There's a friend of mine who grew up in a very strict Christian home that divided everything that was sacred and secular. And in, inside of his home, they could only watch Christian movies and listen to Christian music. And so the, the parents had completely removed everything from the shelves and it had to pass this test. 
And my friend was raised in this, and he was taught to really despise things secular. And in high school, he began to rebel. He, he ran away from that thinking, and he ran away from the faith, and he joined a punk rock band, and he declared himself an atheist, and he started living his life completely away from God. When he was late in college, he was looking for work, and he was in this band, and he was a drummer, and one of his friends said to him, you know, um, there's this church down the street, they'll pay you to play drums if you want. You know, if you want to They'll pay you each Sunday. You know, they need, they're looking for a drummer. What do you think? And he was needing money. He was hungry. He said, okay, I can do that. I mean, I, he grew up in church. I'm, I, I, can, I understand it. But I'm not going to listen to what the pastor says. I've, it's nonsense. I'm just there to play drums. That first week he went and he played drums. And the second week, the pastor, the senior pastor of that church came up to him and said, hey, you play very well. Um, how about if you came over to my house for dinner? Come over to my house for dinner. And so he did. And when he was at the senior pastor's house, he, he was shocked to discover that he had secular music in his house and secular movies. And then at one point during the dinner, the pastor said to him, hey, do you like Led Zeppelin? Isn't their music incredible? And that blew my friend away. It blew him away. That this pastor could see God's work out there. Today, my friend is now the senior pastor of that very church. <laughs> and he's doing incredible ministry. But that hostile wall had been taken down. God says, I want you to live in that city. The second thing he says is, I want you to love that city. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This again is a stunning letter from Jeremiah. Okay, wait a minute. We might live there, but you want us to love these people? And you actually want us to see and hope that the city will flourish? They, they, they conquered us. They must have read this thing and go, what are you talking about? Seek the welfare of Babylon. Really? You know, the, the dominant value of our society, if we're honest, the dominant value of the city that we are living in right now is a focus upon the self and what the self wants and what the self needs. It's... it's it's rampant individualism. We hear people say all the time, I, I'm doing a better job of taking care of myself. Self-care. We have a magazine called Self. Now, here's the, here's the deal. When, when, when you're focused on self, um, here's an example. Try being in a marriage where both parties are saying, I'm in it for me. I am in it for what I can get out of this. How does that work? It doesn't work. Try being in a church where everyone says, I have to have it the way I want it to be. I must have it the way I think it ought to be. How will that church function? Not well. Or a workplace. Augustine said there are two cities 
always simultaneously going on around us. One is the city of self-love, where everyone is saying, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? And that was the dominant value of Babylon. And oh, by the way, it's the dominant value of the city that we are living in. But what if you have a marriage where both partners are saying, my life is here to serve yours? And what if that marriage partner says back to you, you know what, but my life is here to serve yours? (laughs) What if both partners are striving to serve the other and give the other of what they have? Then you start having a wonderful relationship. What if you have a church where everyone is saying, I'm here to give away so that others may? Suddenly you have a church on mission. What if you have in a city a group of people that go against the grain and against the values of that city and they say, we're here to serve this city, to love this city of Scottsdale because we want it to flourish. We want its citizens to thrive. We want all of us to have justice. And so we're going to give of our time and energy so that this city here will be livable and wonderful. Suddenly you have a group of people They're going to be attractive. People are going to look in and say, what kind of value is that? You're giving yourselves away? That's different. That's incredibly unique. Augustine called that the city of God's love. And we are citizens of that city if we're part of the church of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, Jesus came and said, my life for yours. One of my, maybe, maybe my favorite movie of all time, and I, I know it's yours too, so I don't even have to say that, but um, uh, we're, we're, we're about to enter the season where we're going to see it on TV constantly. It's a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. You know this movie? Um, I absolutely love it. There's, you know, the Bailey family, George Bailey, and they, they run the building alone in Bedford Falls, and the building alone is, is, is there to help people in that city, in that town, get, get, low, get mortgages so they can buy a house. It's not profitable at all. They're they're really not making any money, but they're threatened by Mr. Potter, right? You remember this, Mr. Potter? And and Mr. Potter is there, and he is there to make a profit and to put the Bailey family out of business completely. He's in it for greed. He's in it for self. And there's this wonderful juxtaposition between the two. I like to say this is the George Bailey over here. He's the city of of God's love, and Mr. Potter is the city of self-love. There's this great line. He says, you sit around here, you spin your little webs, Bailey says to him. You think that the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. The whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. There's another scene in the movie when George's father, looking back over years of running this little building alone, reflecting on how they had served the people. They weren't making much money, but they were allowing people to thrive in that city. He says, you know, George, I feel in a small way we are doing something important. It's deep in the race of man for, to want his own roof and walls and fireplace, and we're helping him get these things in our shabby little office. I love that. There was a group of people that gathered and knew that they were loved and they knew that they had an opportunity to be a blessing. 
when, when, when this letter was written to the exiles, it was like Jeremiah was saying, would you concern yourself with the people who are your neighbors thriving? Give your life away for them so they can live in a good house and they can have clean water and they can have good schools. We want to love them and care for them. We love the city. And Jeremiah says, move in and be a witness. Be an ambassador. Be all these things. I like what Dallas Willard said. He said, and it's a question that we've asked before at this church and our leaders keep asking, if Mountain View Presbyterian Church were suddenly taken away, if it suddenly did not exist anymore, would this neighborhood around us be upset and weep? Because they, we have been doing so much good to the people around us. I think it's a very, very important question to have in front of us all the time. And then finally, we are to live with hope for the coming city. For surely I know the plans I have for you. Verse 11 says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm, but to give you a future with hope. This is one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible. Certainly the most popular verse in all of the book of Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. It's a very popular verse. It can be seen on Hobby Lobby signs around the house. On mugs, banners, campaign slogans, on and on and on. You see this verse. But now you're learning a little bit more of the context. It's a little dangerous to take this verse out of context. God had just got done telling them, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. <laughs> 70 years you're going to be in a foreign land. But I know the future. I know what's coming. We can live in the city, we can love the people of the city, but we also know that you and I are not defined by or contained by the city. Our citizenship is in heaven, said Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote to those facing a very secular city. They were in exile in Philippi. They were struggling with all these different mystery cults and religion around them, secularization, people consumed with self-love. And when Paul wrote to them, he says, yes, 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 but remember this, our citizenship isn't there. It's not in Philippi. We are already enrolled as citizens in a future city, God's city, for what's coming. We should work for the welfare, yes, of the city, but we also know it is not our eternal home. And therefore, we should not be overly affected by the workings, by the politics of the city. We want to love the people around us. But when this city stumbles, when this country stumbles, when this country goes wrong, is, does it crush us? No. We've already got our papers. We're already knowing that we are destined for somewhere else. God's promised it. I know the future. And there's hope in that future. And that's a message we need to hear time and time again. You know, often when someone recites this verse, they're thinking about that God will give them their own American dream. All the blessings you've dreamed of since childhood. But when we understand the context, when we understand what's actually being communicated, it radically changes the message. 
God indeed has a plan. But that doesn't mean it's one of ease and comfort. And God's plan is quite different from the one that we might order or even imagine. You know, all of us are given moments, days, months, years of exile. The, the essential meaning of exile is that you are in a place that you do not want to be. And all of us go through periods where we're in a place, maybe it's a location, or maybe it's a season of grief. We have a time when we are in a place where we do not want to be. What do we do with that time? Wish we were someplace else? Wish we were with someone else? Complain, escape, or will we choose to love the people around us? Will we choose to celebrate and remember daily that this is a temporary place or season? We've been enrolled somewhere else. And our God promises to bring us home. Exile reveals what really matters. Which is to seek the Lord with all of our hearts. Because at the end of the day, the Bible says there is one. There is one who's come for us. Who's come to find us in our exile who's come and said, I'm preparing a home for you. And I will take you there to be with me. Let us pray. Father, it's, it's um, often difficult to know how to best live in a city that seems foreign, that often exhibits values that we don't hold dear Yet we hear this wonderful message and reminder to be ambassadors of your love, to be a light and to be a witness. We thank you for Jeremiah, for his strong, wonderful ministry and powerful reminder. But mostly, Father, today we thank you for Jesus, who's preparing a future for us, a future filled with hope. And in this we pray in his name. Amen.